I am Anastas Mikos, and you're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey there, Ben Rock. How you doing? Not so fast, Ilya. Before we get to the show, we have a book giveaway to do. It is for the book, Junk Film, written by Catherine Coldiron. We had Catherine on the show a couple weeks ago. I think this book is effing awesome. I love this book. And you can win an autographed copy for free. Just go to our Instagram, and there are instructions right there on how to enter the giveaway. Excellent. Hey, Ben, tell people who you are and what do you do when you're not hosting podcasts? My name is Ben Rock. I'm a Taurus. I uh, I like slow walks in the rain and I like directing. I know not why. It's very stressful, but I enjoy it. And I have done uh, movies and TV and recently long form audio fiction. How about yourself, Ilya? Why don't you introduce yourself? My name's Ilya Friedman. Uh, I own a camera shop called Hot Red Cameras. It's a popular shop located in Burbank. I've got uh, some very loyal customers, many people who've been on the show, which is fun. I moved to Portland about a year ago, but I'm back. You've never in... said that on the podcast. You've I know, never saying, actually said I'm that publicly. I'm saying it now. I'm saying it and I'm saying it now. It's not a secret. I just didn't broadcast it. But yeah, I, yeah. I'm, I'm in Portland about 70% of the time. I'm in Burbank about 30% of the time. So there's a 20 plus percent chance, 25% chance of running to be in the building. So, so I've, I've, I like never wanted to out you as someone who had moved to Portland, but I want, I must know how much like Portland is it. Are you, are you compelled to put birds on things? <laughs> I've never been compelled to do that, but I got to admit that I moved here never having seen Portlandia. And so I've caught it on, I want to say Pluto TV. They have like an all Portlandia channel and I get it now. And I got to say that I didn't really, I, it's probably good that I didn't watch it before living here because I don't think I would have gotten the humor. But now I get the humor. So I, I appreciate it. It's good. But, but yes, there is definitely some reflection of the area uh, displayed in that show, for sure. Anyway, <laughs> so, so Ben, who is on our podcast today? Uh, we have Anastas Mikos, who is nominated for an Emmy for shooting the episode of Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities series. He shot the episode called The Autopsy, and it's Awesome. Autopsome. <laughs> you guys can have that one. Uh, it is, it's a really great episode. Stars F. Murray Abraham. And uh, he's got some cool, wild stories. I mean, like, I always look up people's filmography and everything, but I didn't quite exactly put together. The first feature he shot was for Milos Foreman. He shot Man on the Moon. That was the first feature he ever shot. Mm. That's what got him into shooting features was Man on the Moon. I just that's, want that's major. Just yeah. So soak in that for a second. But I thought it was uh, I, I didn't really bring this up in the interview because there's no point in it. But uh, F. Murray Abraham made a big star by Milos Forman in Amadeus. Amadeus, uh, yeah, of course. One one of my personal favorite movies of all time. And I thought it was really cool that he uh, he brought it full circle for Milos. I don't really think it, he did, but got to work with F. Murray Abraham. Or as he calls him Murray. I guess you wouldn't call him. I guess you wouldn't call him F. You wouldn't that, call him F. Yeah, that's yeah. that's yeah, that's tough. And now close focus. So Ben, it was a busy week in the sort of a news caravan of yeah. uh, stuff in the industry. What do you want to talk about first in the close focus segment of the show? 
So for close focus, the first thing that really I, I feel like we should mention, because to me, it's it hit me more than anything, even though it wasn't completely unexpected, was the death of William Friedkin, who, you know, was he was getting up there. He was in his 80s. But I think one of the trend setting filmmakers, one of one of the greats. And obviously he did movies like The Exorcist, uh, French Connection. I would always bring up Sorcerer as, I think, my personal favorite film of his. Sorcerer, which is sort of a remake of The Wages of Fear. And it is one of the most tense movies I've ever seen. There's a scene of this truck going over a bridge. It's this rickety-ass bridge. And the truck has dynamite that's kind of decayed to the point where if it moves a little bit, it could explode at any moment. Mm -hmm. And so they're trying to keep it still as they are buffeted by waves and water on this bridge that could fall at any time. It's like 27 different horrible scenarios are playing out in your head as they try and stay alive as they cross this bridge. Just beautiful work. You know, The Exorcist, he often denied that The Exorcist was a horror movie, but I would argue that The Exorcist was the horror movie. Like, that Mm -hmm. set the tone for horror, at least studio-level horror films. You know, he's just one of the best people ever to step behind the camera. And uh, his last movie that was released in theaters was an adaptation of Tracy Lett's amazing play, Killer Joe, that I also would encourage people to check out. It's dark and disturbing. That guy never stopped being innovative and interesting right down to the end. And uh, I would put him in a category of filmmakers at that time, like Francis Ford Coppola, Martin Scorsese, Steven Spielberg, Richard Donner. He was that level of filmmaker. Yeah. The French Connection chase scene is, I mean, the whole French Connection, it sort of has that visceral quality that Friedkin is is really known for in a lot of his movies and and you know talking about redefining genres and I mean we got to give a shout out to to Owen Roisman who also passed away this year uh, he you know he's an older fellow I had the pleasure of meeting him on a couple of occasions and uh, actually getting to see The Exorcist at the Chinese theater on their gigantic screen during a revival probably yeah, 20, 20 I saw years it, ago that it, was like in tw- in two thousand when they exactly. uh, when they re released it yeah I mean, it was the same thing with Owen Roisman he was he was an older fellow but you know uh, he'd been around for a long time and uh, we have the incredible works to reference of his that definitely stand the test of time. Okay, so what else is happening this week? What else is uh, is going well, on? I think it's actually a little bit newsworthy that the theatrical revival is continuing. So this week was the fourth time in box office history to have four movies cross $25 million on the same weekend. Those four being Barbie, which is like way out in front of all the other movies. Like, honestly, Barbie's kicking everyone's ass. It's just the biggest movie of the year. But it was Barbie, Oppenheimer, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles reboot, 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 reboot. It's like, I think the third (laughs) time. I think so. And the Meg Part 2, which uh, I have it on good authority, is a very fun and stupid giant shark movie. (laughs) Very well done, where I think Jason Statham somehow manages to... uh, punch and kick his way through a prehistoric shark somehow. Wow. Incredible. And, you know, part of that money was me. I, I went and saw Barbie and I, I got to say that I'm happy to contribute to this giant weekend. And I'm glad that the box office is is doing well, because, that you know, if you really want to make sure that that movies stick around, go see a movie, go see a movie. That's definitely the, you know, the ticket. You know, the more that you do that, the more likely that that will continue to happen. And so, I, I have my own story of, of movie going, but I'm going to save it for my short end. All right. Uh, also, hey, the AMPTP is back talking with the Writers Guild. I don't know if they're also talking to the actors, but the strike is there's some sort of progress that's happening right now. I don't know how much progress. We don't have any new reports. It just 
came as of this past Friday, so a couple of days ago. I don't think mm-hmm. that anything's being publicly put out there. I know we are closing in on that 100-day mark, and there was a sort of press release about how the AMPTP, they want to get back to negotiating. So I don't know. I've got a little bit of hope, a little bit of hope that things are... I, I yeah. have a little bit of hope, although there were some quote-unquote leaks that people think were kind of intentional plants mm, in the press. Intentional leaks, a, yeah. AMPTP companies basically saying that the Writers Guild was being intransigent and the Writers Guild literally came out with a press release to the contrary. I don't necessarily want to get in between the food fight. I will tend to side with the Writers Guild on Mm. all of this. Of course. I'm not saying any human being is infallible, but I do believe that the AMPTP is trying as best they can to break the unions. And so I tend to ascribe uh, higher aspirations to uh, to both the unions that are striking right now. That's me. Uh, Call me a communist, but I feel like uh, labor in this case is being exploited and being pushed beyond the point of it being even kind of reasonable. I I will say that, like, I've gotten into friendly disagreements. I haven't gotten into anything acrimonious on social media where people are, like, blaming this on producers because Mm -hmm. the AMPTP is... You know, the, the yeah, last they, P is producers. Producer, yeah, but and, that's, and it's like that's not the same thing. It's yeah. like we're talking about the difference between a producer who like goes out and makes a movie and raises money and busts their ass to make to get a movie made or a TV show made or whatever. And we're talking about the difference between them and a studio executive. I, I think that even the name AMPTP kind of misleads us to thinking that these people are the boots on the ground. They're telling the Teamsters where to park the catering trucks and they're not. There are people who live in offices and make substantial sums of money more than the producers. And, you know, I I feel like somebody's got to stick up for the producers. Yeah, there's a real semantic issue with all the different producing credits and titles out there. And it definitely takes a, you know, maybe not quite a Ph.D., but probably some other sort of advanced degree to be able to understand and define all of them. Uh, but hey, you know, wasn't there a podcast that we were just talking about that oh, yeah. kind of dove into all this? It's, this? it's Deadline Strike Talk. So Strike Talk, which is hosted by Billy Ray, had Jason Blum, Craig Mazin and Lily Wachowski. And go listen to this episode because they talk about what's wrong with the business. Also, another shout out to a different podcast that's called The Town. that has been kind of covering how Netflix specifically had distorted the business by Mm. creating this fire hose of movies and TV shows that they call content. I hate that word. But basically that there was just an unlimited reservoir of that, that we were going to fire at, at our audiences and how all the other networks and, and uh, basically said, I think Craig Mazin kind of puts it like they all kind of looked at each other and said, are we doing this? I guess we're doing this. But now what we're finding out is that it's far less profitable than we all thought it was going to be. And it's taken, you know, low these 10 years or so that we've had streaming. It's been more than 10 years, but, you know, streaming really kicked in over the last decade. And it's kind of a bell that has to be unrung if we're going to sort of, I don't want to say save the entertainment industry, because there will always be an entertainment industry, but to continue to make it profitable and productive. And I feel this. I don't know if anyone else feels this, but I feel like uh, how often do you hear about some awesome TV show starring an actor that you love created by people whose work you admire and you just don't ever have the goddamn time to sit down and watch it Mm. because life is short. You have other obligations in your life, be it family or work or whatever. You can't watch all of this freaking premium stuff that's out there. And they've been shoveling, you know, God knows how much money. Yeah. Yeah. 
at making this stuff. And it's great for the people who are making it, but it also isn't doing them any favors because it's hard to even get to see it. And I feel like, and this is another axe of mine, but I feel like it's de-eventized movies when they just like turn a switch and it's on at Netflix. There's no bus ads. There's no billboards. There's no trailers on other movies. There's no posters in the movie theater. Nothing to make you excited about. Like all the stuff that's making uh, Barbenheimer the phenomenon that it is. And, yeah. And in two or three weeks, whatever it is, won't be on that top 10 list and might be even hard to find. It's like, you know, yeah. Netflix doesn't share a lot of that statistical data. And so, you know, the, and that, that's what the, the town podcast is talking about is, you know, will these companies ever share that stuff? And they're saying, and I think this is really true, is that the reason that they're not sharing it has less to do with they don't want to tell everyone how much money they would owe them. They don't want to admit that a lot of these shows are underperforming. Yeah, I think that's exactly, I think that maybe both are true. You know, speaking of underperforming, if you're a Showtime streaming service subscriber, uh, that's going away this year. It's been uh, widely announced. This this really came, came to the forefront a few months ago, but now we're getting more and more data of just like what the merger of Paramount Plus plus Showtime has really cost Paramount. And it sounds like in Q1, it was $1.7 billion. And now in Q2, it's like $2.1 billion. It's cost a lot of money. And this total subscriber account, I think, is something around $61 million, which like, you know, not bad. It but, ain't nothing, yeah. Yeah, but they're, they're also talking about possibly partnering with like Warner Brothers Discovery to bundle now. It's like there's all there's there's all these conversations oh, yeah. going on. And, you know, the, Disney's the, talking about possibly selling off Hulu and ABC. Yeah, it's it's very it's very interesting to see what's happening in the shakeup. And because like I, I have no doubt that this is very expensive for the studios. And I also have no doubt that there have the most incredible accountants in the world and they can make everything look like a loss and still make a a fortune. So I certainly predict that having some of these stories sort of come out about like, oh, woe is us, the AMPTP that we hear uh, don't have any money for these negotiations. Look how much money we're losing. Uh, they, They have plenty of money. Yeah. I just think that this is this is also sort of like well-timed and the pleads of poverty from some of the wealthiest people on the planet is going to be uh, very interesting to listen to in the in the coming weeks. But anyway, I, I have a prediction before we go. Yeah. I have a prediction that the fallout of all of this after the strikes are over, after we're back into full swing in the business, whatever the new normal turns out to be, I think it's going to be far less television. And I think we're going to start seeing an uptick in movies because I think that movies are a cleaner transaction and can as Barbie is showing what what I love about the success of Barbie is that even though it is an IP it's not a superhero thing it's a movie that you not know a sequel. Was, it yeah. is it's not a sequel it it goes against so much of the conventional wisdom that that's been fired at you it's a movie that isn't not for men but is probably aimed a little bit more at women than it is at men or maybe a lot more at women than it is at men but people are digging it it's a four quadrant hit out of the park Agreed. i mean it's It's the biggest hit of the year, and it's not a freaking superhero movie. And uh, as much as I like a good superhero movie, not down on superhero movies, it's nice to see that that and Oppenheimer, movies like that, really finding a theatrical audience. I think people are ready to go back to theaters, and I think that we've missed throughout the pandemic kind of the communal experience of going to movies in theaters together and seeing movies as opposed to sitting at home and streaming eight hour television series that probably could have been movies to begin with. That's the end of my rant. And here, here to Barbie too for 
becoming a billion dollar movie. It's, you know, it's now the, the largest uh, movie ever directed by a woman and uh, hitting a billion dollars. That, that's huge. That, I mean, now they, they have to make hitting a, a billion dollars in what, three weeks? Yeah, uh, yeah. very fast. R- worldwide billion dollars. Anyway, we so ought to get to that interview. <laughs> uh, here we go. Here's Anastas Mikos. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. All right, so we're here today with uh, Anastas Mikos, who is nominated for an Emmy for shooting Cabinet of Curiosities episode, uh, The Autopsy, which is an amazing episode. I uh, watched it when it dropped, and then before this interview, I went and rewatched it and noticed a bunch of stuff that I didn't notice the first time. Just brilliant, brilliant work. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you very much for those um, wonderful accolades and kudos. It was a really great kind of, uh, it was a fun experience for me. I, I have to tell you that working up in Toronto, even though it was in the middle of the pandemic, locked for two weeks in my apartment, it was all good. Oh my God. So like back then when you went to Canada, they had to, you had to quarantine when you went into the country? Yeah, it was two weeks quarantine and then prep. So pacing a six by four balcony, ask me how I know. Oh my God. That sounds awful. <laughs> um, yeah. I, all the stuff that we're talking about, everyone's got pandemic stories from the shoot and I'm kind of looking forward to a year or two from now when we don't have pandemic stories. So, uh, firstly, like what brought you to the project? Had you worked with David Pryor before? Like what was the, what, what was the attraction? So I'd worked with David Pryor on, um, a feature film for Fox called The Empty Man. And, um, that was Which shot in South awesome, Africa. Which is awesome, by the way. Oh, thank I you. I love that movie. It's yeah, yeah, so yeah. David's quite the director and, um, it sort of got lost in the shuffle when Disney bought out Fox and the release date was also compromised by the pandemic. So yeah, uh, it yeah. didn't get quite as much play as it could have. But then, yes, uh, David obviously had gotten the call from Guillermo to join that team. And David kindly asked me to, that I would uh, photograph the, the episode for him. And um, I had a marvelous time collaborating with him. So, I mean, you have a background, uh, looking at your website, you've got it broken out by genre. So you've got horror and thriller, but even some of the stuff that you have on there that you're calling thrillers or movies like After Dot Life. I don't know if it's After Dot Life or After Life. After Life. It's, it's definitely horror adjacent, at least. Are you someone who has studied horror? Are you somebody, some, some people we talk to kind of fell into horror. Some people are excited about horror and that's what gets them going. Is, is genre and horror something that's, uh, that motivates you? Interesting enough, I've had a career as a uh, camera operator before I started shooting as a DP. And as a camera operator, I did, you know, three or four films a year uh, all the way through. As a DP, that all of a sudden by its nature switches to, you know, two films every 18 months or whatever. Yeah. Having said that, I've always been interested in cross-genre, always, because storytelling is what grabs me and script what grabs me and also who am I working with. And although Afterlife is supernatural mm-hmm. it doesn't genre and labels are complicated what i like about horror film is all the best of horror films explore a human condition mm-hmm. in a very specific way in the cabinet of curiosities the autopsy it really is very much of an existential question of a man dying recognizing his own mortality knowing that he's going to die and discovering some sort of other life. Yeah. And that's what ultimately draws me to horror genre. So I just completed a film with James DeMonico called The Home, which is squarely horror-based in its genre, but it's also rooted in climate change 
and what we're doing and leaving to the future generations. So what you can do in horror film photographically is stretch the imagination and stretch the image to a point where you might not be able to do that as much in a drama or a romantic comedy or a romance because those are very much based in today's reality. Everybody's day-to-day -day reality. Everybody's has gone through a dramatic moment with their significant other. Everybody has fallen in love with somebody or other. Everybody has broken mm. up for the most part. Very few of us have actually come across an alien being um, and <laughs> had to figure out how to imagine what that was or what kind of setting time space continuum you might put them in. We can stretch the imagination. You'll also notice that I tend to um, flip back and forth in between genres because once I've done a horror film, I think, oh, a rom-com would be really good because, you know, you can, always, <laughs> you can only deal with so much at one time. Yeah, yeah. Well, and also, I mean, it, I feel like it makes it impossible to pigeonhole you. Oh, you have yeah. such a broad range of, of projects. I have to say the you know, working from Man on the Moon to Texas Chainsaw pretty much covers a lot of ground in there. <laughs> you oh, know. my God. So, yeah. That, I, I feel a, like we could do a whole episode on Man on the Moon. That, that movie's fascinating. It, yes, it was. And it was my first DP job ever. It was a, it was a big deal. With Milos Foreman? That was your first? Your first, yeah. uh, first shooting whoa. job. Whoa. But not anyway. to digress too hard, but Milos Foreman, from what I know of him, it seems like he would be the right, the best possible director to do that with because he seems unbelievably uh, nurturing. I would rephrase that mm -hmm. and say that he was unbelievably generous and demanding, mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. he had the capability of recognizing somebody's potential and holding them to it. And that is what all of us hope to work with in a collaboration where yeah. we will, where somebody recognizes what we can offer and then raises the bar on us. And yeah, yeah. that is the kind of collaborative moment. And yes, he was a generous, but there, there's, I mean, you know, he was like my favorite movie uncle ever. I mean, it was Uncle Miloshi for sure. So that was my first big Hollywood movie. And everybody along the way, my, all my mentors, and Milos was one, and Philippe Wichelot was the other, has, when you do that, you have to recognize the ability of the other and possibly sometimes believe more in them than they do believe in themselves because it was a huge step. David Pryor also has that same sensibility where he brought me onto a project in South Africa and held me to a bar that was higher possibly and then the page demanded. And, and, and when you work with somebody long enough, in the day-to-day -day basis, it's not obvious, but in the long run, you recognize that, oh, this particular shot, oh, I could do it this way. Oh, that'd be pretty easy and quick. Oh, let me take a chance and do it this other way. That'd be way better. And it's going to be a chance that it might fail, but let me go for that because that's what the, my collaborator is, is expecting. So yeah, Milos was like that. In this era of uh, peak TV, where I feel like every TV show is getting uh, feature film qualities, you know, like it has the look, it has the camera work, the lighting, in this case, the actors, you've got Oscar winning actors in it. None of Cabinet of Curiosities feels like, oh, it's a TV show. We're going to get, you know, right. master over, over, and then we're out of the room. Like everything feels just very constructed so specifically and done with such care. And that's I think part of what makes it kind of rise above to me, you know, I completely understand why it's nominated for awards. Part of the, the construct of series 
is that the majority of series on television is constructed for character arc. Less so about plot and more so about character. The reason we tune in next week is to find out what's going on with that guy. Yeah. Right? Not what's going to happen next. And what's going to happen next, the actual nuts and bolts of that plot point is immaterial. It's literally what's happening to that because that's how series are constructed over the, the range of, you know, um, whatever, 8, 10, 12 episodes. The reason that cabinet works so well is because they're disconnected. So therefore, each piece is a crafted short story yeah. rather than a serialization of something. You're very astute and right about why that feels that way. Well, and also, you know, even kind of in the bigger picture with, you know, I know Guillermo del Toro is not directing these and I have no idea if he was even on your set, but like one of the hallmarks I think of a del Toro film from a visual standpoint, from the way he covers a scene is he doesn't usually do coverage. He will have a shot that takes you in and a shot that takes you out and they might cross cut a couple of times, but it's very constructed. Like there's no formula to how to shoot a Guillermo del Toro scene. You know, I'm thinking about things like Pan's Labyrinth or Shape of Water, but I feel like that's the one thing that I think unifies this because you go, oh, it's the Twilight Zone or Hitchcock Presents-esque thing done with the Guillermo del Toro brand. But his brand is such a broad range of things that by the title of it, Cabinet of Curiosities, everything should be a little different than everything else. But what unifies it is that, I think. Absolutely. And what differentiates it between the Twilight Zone and everything else was the fact that this was a standalone piece that David went after idiosyncratic directors, in other words, directors that had their very own sensibilities. Yeah. And normally when you do a TV series, you bring in directors and the directors tweak their own sensibilities to the sensibility of the episode that they're directing. And the yeah, DP yeah. normally on a series is the visual guardian of said episode. You know, so NCIS, Law and Order, name all the other ones, even the more <laughs> newer ones, you know, everything from The Crown, et cetera, et cetera. There, there's a visual style that these directors are coming in and that they have to work underneath that umbrella. Yeah. This was I ask TPs that thing. all the time. I ask them that constantly where like they're having to follow somebody else, even if it's a show that's like as creative and inventive as Dead Ringers, you right. know, it was set in place by Jody Lee Leipz and then it was taken over. And there has to be uh, cohesion at least. And so to me, it's it's really interesting to see a show where it's encouraging the opposite of that a little, a little bit. And yet somehow in doing that, there still is cohesion. I could look at an episode of anything and tell you if it was from the series. Like it, it's very right. distinctive. I think for me, the interesting part of it was we had a production designer who did it all who was Guillermo's production designer on all of this, including Shape of Water, et cetera, et cetera. So that was a tonality that allowed the pieces to somehow be a little bit more symbiotic in, in the way they interacted with each other, even though they were disseparate in time. And also, I'll be very candid and say, in the back of my mind, particularly in the DI and whatnot, there's always in my head, the words at the very top of this is GDT Presents. So this yeah. is going to be somehow filtered in my head through a GDT sort of sensibility. David and I never spoke about it. And we didn't, we didn't say, oh, let's watch Shape of Water. Let's watch, you know, Pan let's watch any of the iconic ones that, that Guillermo has done. But you know, going in that he has his, as you say, brand on it, his stamp, his imprature, and therefore yeah. it changes the way you look at things. 
Interesting. Interesting. So can you tell me a little bit about like, what was the visual language? You know, were there certain specific lenses, certain specific filters, certain specific lights or whatever that you found were uh, important for you to kind of build the world the way, the way that you were going? David loves to work with Panavision Anamorphic C-Series, but guess what? We weren't going Panavision. Okay. So what do you want to do, David? Let's take a look at something else. Like anything, you know, if you, you, one can fall back to the ingredients that you like to make whatever you're making. And if they're not available, then like any good chef, you look at what's in the cabinet, you go, okay, well, what can I do? Not what can I make do with what I have, but what can I create with what is given and what's available? And so that is often the idea of constraint promotes and is conducive to creativity. As opposed to the opposite. You know, when I work on big, big things, you think, oh, God, I could do anything. You know, oh, yeah, we're going to do this. That's the move. It's going to be great. We're going to have the, well, you know, I mean, I have helicoptered literally 75 foot technocranes into the middle of the mountains, literally on helicopters, taken apart and chunked them up there. Insane. Um, yes, totally insane. <laughs> um, and, you know, producers go, yeah, okay, we can afford that. Let's do it. But on the other hand, if you can't do that, then what do you do? What, what part of your brain starts to work and how do you mm -hmm. overcome that? So, you know, that's the, the, the thing about doing something like this is that we, not to get technical, we were, you know, hoping, hoping Panavision, but we, we were overjoyed with Zeiss. And so that's what we went with. Well, like, I mean, do you then on your next project kind of take that sensibility with you, you know, the next time you're doing a bigger feature and take the economy, the constraint, I guess, it's not really economy that you learned on this and kind of put it on yourself on a feature so that even though you have more to work with, you're more focused and specific. Or when you move on to the next feature, it's like strike up the helicopter or bring in the techno cranes into, into the Amazon. I think it's more of the latter. And the reason is the bigger the budget, the bigger the stakes. The bigger the stakes, mm -hmm. the more you cover your ass. In other words, mm -hmm. it's hard to turn to a director on something that's costs a lot of money and say, we can't do that because we don't got that. What do you mean you don't have it? What do you mean you can't? Whoa, 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 whoa. Didn't we talk about it? Yes. So when you have a thing that is more constrained, it's funny. I did another small film, uh, which came out quite lovely. And I sent back all lenses except for the 29 mil and the 50 mil Panavision Vintage. I literally had a set of vintages and I was using them. And at the end of the first week, I realized that the language that the director and I came up with, all I was using was a 29 and 50. And I told David oh, wow. Dotson, yeah, I told David Dotson, Panavision LA, uh, take him back. And he said, what are you crazy? And I go, uh, yeah, a little bit. And I think I want to do a movie without just with, the, with just two lenses. And that's what we did, except for a beach scene where I brought in another uh, th three cameras and some like went to like 1200 mils and 600 mils with doublers and three to ones with doublers. And so therefore I was doing like, you know, really super long lensy stuff. But for the- for can, the, you, can you say what the film was? Yeah, yeah. It was a thing called The Keeping Hours, uh, Karen Moncrief. It's with Lee Pace. It's a wonderful little story. Now, I mean, like I've seen these listicles that go around that are like movies that were entirely shot on one lens. I want to say like A Clockwork Orange was one. Like there were some big ones. Um, yeah, like Polanski, for example. Polanski with his 27 and 35, pretty much. Yeah, so can you tell me a little bit about like what was the visual language? What what were the decisions that were made that made you feel most comfortable on the, what would you say, 29 and a 50? What happens is that you recognize that one, a rhythm is starting up 
visual rhythm that you like, that you both like, you and the director like that, you know? And so mm. often we will put up a lens. And I, when I work with James DeMonaco, director, often we will put up the lens and go, eh, man, we're going to have to go back to that 60. Why? It's 60 anamorphic. Yeah, it's a C-series lens. Uh, why? Because that's the right lens for this moment. You know, you put up, but you try it. Well, let's try it on the 75. You put it up, you go, eh, it's not right. You go back, eh, that's not right. And you recognize when you're looking at it, you know, it's not this film. It's not this particular film. Uh, and I think it's very much like uh, brushstrokes when you're painting, uh, not that I'm a painter, but when one's painting, you pick up a brush and you recognize that's your go-to brush. You know, that's a brush that you tend to use in this particular painting. You might use this in like a, in a feather or something, but that's what it is because that's what this particular painting is calling for. And I'm, I'm a journeyman DP. And like you said earlier, I, I cross genre a lot. So what speaks to one film doesn't necessarily speak to the rom-com by any stretch. Yeah. And I've done a lot of music uh, in my career in terms of films. So it certainly doesn't necessarily speak to that, but you have to let yourself open to recognizing and then I believe sometimes even limiting yourself so that it serves the film. And in that case, with Karen's film, uh, The Keeping Hours, the 29 and the 50 were the go-tos. That's what survived. So let's talk a little bit about your background, where you came from. And I always like to know, when was it in your life that you realized being a cinematographer was a job that could be had and you decided that that was the direction you were going to go in? Gosh, it was fairly late in my life. Interesting enough that the job, knowing there was a job of cinematographer, uh, I stumbled on through my next door neighbor, who was a news camera person and then became one of the most sought after Steadicam operators, a guy by the name of Larry McConkey. And I got a gig shooting, um, shooting news, which I think was my training ground for visual storytelling because I got to shoot and cut my own stuff. And it also went on air and the consequences of being messy or not having clarity were limited because it was literally a minute piece, two minute pieces on the 11 o'clock news. You know, I mean, if it was a big yeah, piece, yeah. it ran twice. So that in itself uh, was the film school for me. In that process- You didn't go to, I, you didn't go to film school at all? No, didn't. Well, at one point I thought that music was gonna be a great career because my, my, my mother's a musician and my uncle. I see two guitars behind you right now. Yes. So that's still part of, well, because musicality comes, is very much a part of camera movement. And I think I, a lot of that gets brought to it. And in fact, I remember being a steady cam operator, Oliver Stone, born on the 4th of July. And we had a thing called a Walkman back then. And he clamped a Walkman on my head and he had played a piece of music. And he said, this is what my soundtrack is going to be. And that was, yeah. And that was one of the moments where you go, oh, I got it. I got how camera and music and pacing and tonality and uh, emotion, because it is emotion over time, all is cohesive. So after that, I, uh, my little news stint, I hooked up with a gentleman by the name of Garrett Brown, who also became a mentor uh, and a really dear friend to this day. And uh, he invented the steady cam. Yeah. And also invented a thing which I helped design several of the elements to a thing called the Skycam, which gets used on football these days, uh, flying around That's camera. Like your, one of your first credits was Skycam operator on Fright Night 2. Yeah, that one, yes. Oh, it's one of, one of your way first credits when. on IMDb. Oh my God, yeah, yeah. Is that what it is? Okay, yeah, that's what it was. Yes, way back when. I remember that. <laughs> and so anyway, I came up through the business that way and I came up through mentors and then I was recommended 
to be a B camera operator on a on a movie called Lean on Me, uh, which yeah. was my first union gig, and then my next gig after that, after day playing and doing Steadicam, uh, Haskell Wexler, who was dear friends with Garrett, hired me to do a film as his A camera operator. So, and that's how I got involved into the feature world that way. But that yeah, was looks fairly like late. You worked with. You worked with Bob Richardson uh, quite a bit too, right? Yeah, back in the days when I was doing Steadicam, I worked um, with Bob a whole bunch, yeah, for sure, and John Seal and a bunch of those guys. I was Sven's operator for a while, Sven Nikvist, for a couple of things before he passed. And I, I believe that all that all that tonality in apprenticeship allows me, not necessarily I want to shoot it that way, but allows me to say, how would they solve this particular problem? Yeah, much yeah. of our job is problem solving. We show up and go, the condor doesn't work. Or, blah, blah, you know, and okay, yeah. and everybody goes, well, what are we doing? You know, well, we're not going home, says the producer. <laughs> that, we know <laughs> we're not doing that. Um, so, yeah, I, that's why I recommend that kind of path to anybody who's kind of interested in doing what we're doing. But, uh, but I don't even know that's possible anymore. So we'll see. Yeah, we. I mean, like we talk to a lot of people and we see the people who kind of came up through the ranks in the camera department and we see people who like went to film school, got out of USC, hung up a shingle and called themselves a DP and just did lower budget stuff. And then the budgets eventually went up. I'd say that people do both all the time, especially like this murderer's row of amazing DPs that you got to operate or do Steadicam for. Like I can only imagine just kind of the lessons you would learn by being around somebody like Haskell Wexler or Sven Nyquist or any of those people. Like that, like it sounds it goes like a back dream. To, it does, well, it's a dream, because, but it does go back to an anecdote. Well, first time I worked with Philippe Rousselot on a film called Summersby. Day two, I think, we're just chatting away. The camera's, I don't know, 50 feet away on the other side of a room. And we're chatting about something. And he says, oh, Tuss, is this like going to be in the frame? And I said, oh, let me go back to the camera and I'll tell you. And he literally shoots me this look as if, as only um, a Parisian can, as if he had just stepped into dog shit. When he, <laughs> that typical like Parisian thing. And he said, use your knowledge of optics and let me know if my light is in your frame. And what that meant to me was everybody has a bar. Everybody expect something out of you and working. You don't want to be the smartest guy in the room because you want to live up to somebody else's thing, you know? Now, sometimes unfortunately you are the smartest guy in the room and that's not the show you necessarily want to be on. Sounds terrifying. That part of that sort of apprenticeship sort of sensibility is, is really, I believe important because it, it gets used in other ways with efforts with directors and things like that. Yeah. But anyway, that was my like little, background story. No, that's, that's, that's an amazing story. Well, congratulations again on the Emmy nomination. I'm, I'm fighting for you. I, uh, thank you so much. Thank it's, you. It's a, it's a great episode. Before we go, can you tell our listeners uh, where they can find your work online or interact with you online if you're on social media anywhere? Yeah, you can, uh, easiest place to get me is on Instagram. And that would be under the name of Anastas Mikos underscore ASC underscore GSC. And Anastas Mikos is all one word, A-N-A-S-T-A-S underscore A-S-C underscore G-S-C. G-S-C. Is it Greek? Greek Society of Cinematographers. Yes, I'm Greek. I'm dual national. I just didn't know that. I, uh, that's the first time I've ever even heard of the Greek Society of Cinematographers. It makes sense oh, that yeah. they would have one. But Well, Faden Papa Michael <laughs> is part of it. And, oh, uh, we, we've had yeah, Faden yeah. on a few times. Yeah, yeah. Well, there you I go. Think, I think we may have had Faden on more than, I think he's been on like four times. 
Well, there you go. Faden's good people. He's awesome. Well, cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. And uh, again, anyone listening to the sound of my voice, check out Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities. The episode is The Autopsy, but watch the whole series. It's a great series. And best luck with the Emmys. Thank you so much. Take care now. All right. So that was Anastas Mikos. Thank you so much for coming on the show and good luck at the Emmys. Congrats on being nominated. If you're listening to the sound of my voice and you haven't seen Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities, definitely watch that series and definitely, definitely, definitely check out the autopsy. Awesome. And now, short ends. So Ben, it's the short end. Time of the show. It's the time when we talk about our pet obsessions. What's yours this week? What are you, uh, what are you obsessed about? Um, it's a movie. Hey, um, that's right. right. Yeah. And that I saw in the theater. It is Talk to Me. And I was perusing Twitter. I refuse to call it X. And uh, Tony Timpone, who was the uh, editor-in-chief of Fangoria magazine for like 25 years, mm-hmm. something ridiculous, had tweeted something to the effect of like, don't watch the trailers, don't know anything about it, just go see Talk to Me. It's the horror movie of the year. And I was like, I will do whatever you say, Tony Timpone, because, you know. <laughs> You were the editor-in-chief of Fangoria magazine when I was a teenager. Mm -hmm. And that night, I went and saw uh, Talk To Me. I I had seen a trailer for it. I didn't really know very much about it. And I'm going to ask whoever's listening to this, if you are so inclined to see a movie like this, skip the trailers. I'm not really going to spoil anything. But I just want to say that movie blew my mind. And it's by first-time filmmakers, sort of. They they haven't made a movie before. It's two brothers who are YouTubers. Mm. You know, so they've had a, a very successful YouTube channel for a long time, and it looks great. It has great cast, great acting, and it's one of the few movies I've seen recently where while I'm watching it, I stopped thinking about the craft that was going into it. I stopped, as a horror movie, I stopped thinking about what the next scare would probably be or trying to predict the ending, and I just got lost in the in the freaking movie and truly scared the crap out of me. Truly mm. scared the shit out of me. Wow. Scared shitless. Yeah, I, th- I just thought it was one of the best movies I've seen in a long time. And I feel compelled to shout out the DP, who I would love to get on the show if it's possible to get on the show, because his work is just so amazing. His name is Aaron McCliskey. He's relatively young. Uh, yeah, he shot a movie called Poker Face, which was Russell Crowe's directorial debut. I mean, I think he's mostly Australian. The movie's an Australian yeah, film. they're Australian YouTubers. I don't want to oversell it. I probably already have, but it's just a genuinely scary movie. And also it's a movie like in uh, Barbenheim, Meg, Ninja Turtle Week, whatever we're going to call it. Uh, it's a movie that we haven't been talking about that much, but it's a movie that was bought at Sundance, I think, for $4.5 million mm. and made and made $10 million opening weekend. And it, it hasn't been in the top five, but it's a movie that's not, it's an A24 movie. It's not been getting enormous promotion. And I think that A24 is kind of just letting it simmer. And I feel like Talk to Me could be sort of like that sleeper hit of the summer if if A24 leaves it in theaters long enough. It's just really strong work. So I hope uh, anyone hearing me who wants to get the shit scared out of them, uh, you know, go check it out. It sounds awesome. I, I would watch that. Uh, definitely check it out. So uh, what is your short end this week? It's an Apple TV series, actually, which I want to say I was skeptical, but our producer, Alana Cody, watched it. She gave me the two thumbs up. She said, watch Silo, this Apple TV series. I think that you'll Hmm. really like it. And, you know, I got to say on face value, I thought, you know, it looks like sort of a lower rent sci-fi dystopian sort of thing. I kind of felt like this is going to be something that I've seen before. Holy crap, it is not. And I would put it up there. The the first few episodes, uh, the first 
three episodes are so, so strong and they really get you going down one direction and then do a, a pretty hard right turn. And there's major giving nothing away, but major characters are written out of the show, are killed off right away. And I feel like most networks, if they were if they were making this series, they would have started on episode three and they would have let episode one and two just sort of be the backstory that, you mm. know, that populates the series. But, oh, no, we get to see all of that going in and because there's a really, really rich backstory even behind it. I know it's based on a book series. It's shot in the UK and it's got a cavalcade of uh, different DPs. I think like four or five different people have have shot it. And it's really solid. It's really good. I, nice. I, I mean, I got to say, absolutely edge of your seat cliffhanger sort of thing. I got, I think, two episodes left to watch. And the end of the last episode, someone's like jumping over a balcony and then like, you know, cut to black. And holy crap, I, I can't wait to see what happens. So it's uh, it, it's been really good. A solid series. If you need a recommendation for the small screen, you have a recommendation for the big screen. You want a recommendation for the small screen. I'd say try Silo. Uh, don't watch it when you're tired. If you watch watch it when you're tired. You might be like, what the hell is this? You you need to be able to invest a, f- a little bit of mental activity to make sure you're following it. And I will tell you that episode one and two are very solid, but episode three, it's like, holy crap, what just happened? So th- this is great. Oh yeah. I'll check it out. I sort of feel like the uh, uh, premium TV motto should be don't watch it when you're tired. Premium TV, <laughs> don't watch it when you're tired. I mean, there are definitely shows like Game of Thrones that'll keep you entertained and, and, and engaged. But there's so much of it where it's like uh, character driven and uh, meant to be watched when one is fully awake. I've talked to quite a few people who tried watching Severance and they tried watching it like right before they went to bed. And I think Severance is great. But I totally get that if you if you're tired and you want to start into the show and you're like, I don't understand, you know, I don't understand what's happening, what's happening here. You need to have, you know, full attention paid. And I think there's a lot of people also now that they're watching TV, they're distracted by a phone or they're distracted by, you know, someone else in the house. I I think that if you want to pay proper respect to the, you know, the the producers, the the writers, the filmmakers who put these shows together, uh, whether it be for for television or for the theater, the least you can do. But it's also the most you can do is give them your full attention. You give your full attention. I think the rewards come back so much more than uh, I'm only half half paying attention to this. And Silo definitely deserves your full attention. It's, it's totally worth watching. Apple TV. Uh, I hope we get to talk to some of the people from the show. I have all kinds of questions now and I really enjoyed it. I think you'd like it, too. Awesome. Awesome. All right, Ilya. So I think that that wraps us up before we go. Who should we thank? Well, of course, let's uh, let's thank our team. Let's thank uh, Kaze Elatrachi, who, you know, we usually don't thank first. We're thanking you first tonight, Kaze. Uh, so thank you for the music. If you need music for anything that you're doing, he's not AI. He is a human being. He can compose new original music for whatever it is that you're doing. Go to musicbykaze.com. Let's hey, help- can I can I can I tell a cool story about Kaze, by the way? Go for it. He's, he's, he's been getting into these, like, I he could explain it better than I could. I don't exactly know what it is, but I saw his setup. He's been getting these, like, weird specialized circuit boards and making, like, personalized, like, synthy sounds mm, yeah, that yeah. Only, only he would have that, like, <laughs> nobody but K's will have. Interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, that whole modular synth community is a really big thing, and there's a lot of people in it, but it, I, if K's is doing it... It would not surprise me if he's making his own thing. So absolutely. Okay. Well, let's also thank our producer, Alana Cody. 
who's kicking all the butt and giving us uh, tons of work and things uh, right now. And I, I, I keeping keep, me super busy, yeah, yeah, super busy, lots of interviews, lots of stuff happening. And then, of course, lastly, but never leastly, our editor, Ben Katz, who uh, we didn't give him the easiest time this week. I know there's a little sorry, Ben. Yeah, there's a little sorry, bit of so trimming sorry. that needs to happen. Thanks, Ben. All right. So, Mr. Rock, where can people find you if they want to get more rock in their life? You can go to benrock.com, and I just added a, a section to my website that was corporate work. I realized I've done a bunch of corporate work. I don't really go out and, uh, and uh, tell people about it all the time, but what the hell? I made a little tab for my corporate work right now. There's like only four or five things on there, but hey, you interested in hiring me to do your corporate work? I do that. How about yourself, Ilya? Where can people find you? They can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm one of only three Ilya Friedmans. I'm, pr- I'm pretty easy to find. The other two are, you're not going to get confused at all. You can find me over at Hot Rod Cameras, hotrodcameras.com. That's where I spend a good chunk of my day. And even if I'm not physically there, I am remotely working there now all the time in a sort of a hybrid environment. Yeah. So uh, hit me up at Hot Rod or hit me up on LinkedIn. Hey, uh, random question. Have you ever reached out to the other Ilya Friedmans to like talk to them about what it's like to be an Ilya Friedman because I have done that with our other people named Ben Rock at least two of them I've talked to yeah uh, I did and I think I heard from one and I don't know if I heard from the other one so but uh, I definitely heard from one who thought it was uh, pretty funny and uh, pretty uh, original and unique that that we were both had exactly the same name even though they were yeah totally on the other side <laughs> of the country and uh, totally different age and totally uh, in a different line of work so yeah interesting all right well Ilya uh, that about does it you want to take us out thanks for listening This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.